Today's episode is brought to you by H&R Block. I dive in really deep because I think leadership in crisis is about getting down into the trenches because there's no substitute for being there. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hi, everyone. This show might sound a bit different today because we're skimming from three different couches. The skim is working from home for the time being because of COVID-19. Today, Meg Whitman joins us on Skimmed from the Couch. She is one of the most prominent tech CEOs in the country, having served as the chief executive of both eBay and Hewlett Packer Enterprise. Her most recent venture has taken her out of Silicon Valley and into Hollywood. She's now the CEO of Quibi, a short form streaming platform looking to shake up the entertainment world and giving us all more things to watch. Meg, welcome to Skim from the Couch. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. We are so excited to do this with you. So Meg, we're going to start the way we like to start all interviews, which is, can you scam your resume for us? Yeah. So I went to uh, Princeton undergraduate, went straight to Harvard Business School. My first job out of college was at Procter & Gamble in marketing, then went to Bain & Company in San Francisco for 10 years, joined the Walt Disney Company, moved back to Boston with my husband, who was uh, appointed chairman of the Brain Tumor Center at Harvard Teaching Hospital. So I went to work at StrideWrite and then Hasbro, and came back out to California for eBay in 1998. Spent 10 years at eBay, ran for governor of California as the Republican nominee, lost that race, didn't know what I was going to do with myself, and got a call to run Hewlett Packard, and spent uh, six and a half years at HP. And then I thought I was going to retire, and then I ended up at Quibi. So Meg, that is quite an impressive skim. You probably have one of the most accomplished backgrounds of anyone we've spoken to on this show. What is something that no one would know about you from your LinkedIn, your your fancy bios? <laughs> so I bet no one knows this. I have a new grandson who is 10 months old. Oh, congratulations. Oh, congratulations. What's, his, What's name? his name? So my husband has a different last name than I do. His name is Griff Harsh, and the baby's name is Whitman Harsh. Aww. So one question I want to start off with is we get asked all of the time by people in our audience who are thinking about taking their next step in their career. And they always ask us about how should they think about joining a startup and what should they consider when making that decision? You joined eBay when it was relatively small at the time. What are the things that you thought of back then, given, you know, what it later on became? Yeah. Well, I was at Hasbro. I was running the preschool division, which was Barney, Arthur, Teletubbies, my personal favorite, Mr. Potato Head. And uh, I got a call to go to this no-name startup called eBay. We were barely on the internet in 1998. We were doing email. So it was a really, you know, completely new horizon. It's hard to imagine sitting where we sit today. And um, at first I said no to the headhunter. I said, definitely not doing this. But he called back two weeks later and he said, Meg, you should really think about it. You're perfect for eBay. 
So I went out and met with Pierre Omidyar, who was the founder, 26 years old at the time. And at the end of the day, I went out there mostly because I didn't want to make the headhunter mad. And I got to San Francisco airport that night and I called my husband and I said, we should do this. And so the things that I always look for in consumer companies are, is there a features and functionality benefit? Does it allow you to do something you couldn't do before? So like in my Procter & Gamble days, white or whites, clean or cleans, fresh or breath. Um, and um, do, does it, is there an emotional connection? And if you have both of those in a consumer product, bingo. Pierre Omidyar told me that people had met their best friends on eBay and they were deeply connected to this website. And so I saw something that is very unique, you know, and then I always look for, you know, who's the founder or the CEO, who is on the board of directors, how well is the company funded? What is the consumer need that this new idea is delivering on? And it can be a B2B customer or a B2C customer, but I always go to what's the consumer going to think about this? You know, in the end, you, you sort of jump into the abyss, honestly, and you have to ask yourself, what's the worst thing that can what is like one of the craziest things that happened or something when you look back at those early days on eBay that you were like, oh, I did not think we were going to get through this? Well, I'll tell you one funny story in the recruiting process, and then I'll tell you the thing I weren't, wasn't sure we would get through. So when I went out to interview with Pierre, I was super glad because I got to this office building and there was a receptionist. And for some reason, the fact that they had a receptionist just seemed like it legitimized the company or something. <laughs> I don't know. I, didn't know. I was very relieved. And my first day at work, I go in and where the, the receptionist used to sit, there was no receptionist. There was no desk, no picture, no receptionist. I go about my day and I sit down, you know, I'm in a cube next to Pierre. And about halfway through the day, I said, so Pierre, what happened to the receptionist? And he looked at me and he said, oh, we hired her for the day. <laughs> <laughs> because we were pretty sure that unless we had a receptionist, you wouldn't think we were like big enough or legitimate enough to come work for I said, well, how right you were. So, oh, the biggest thing that happened at eBay that I was not sure we would recover from is on June 10th of 1999, we had a 22-hour outage. For 22 hours, you could not get to the website. So think about this. We had all these buyers, all these sellers. Nothing could happen. The CNN truck was parked outside of eBay wanting hourly updates on what the status report was. It was the most frightening thing I've ever seen because we really did not know what had happened. As it turned out, we had corrupted the entire backend database, and it took us 22 hours to rebuild the database. About two hours before we brought the site back up, I looked over at Pierre and I said, what if we can't bring this site back up? And he said, mm, don't worry. Right about now, a DBA, database administrator, will come running in here and they'll tell us what they found and that they're about to bring the site back up. And I looked at Pierre. I said, yeah. Okay, like that's wishful thinking. Literally as if on cue, about 10 minutes later, a DBA came running in and said, okay, the app is coming, the site is coming up. I mean, obviously that's hugely stressful and an example that's clearly marked in your memory. What are you like in a stressful situation? How do you react when stressed? Yeah, I dive in really deep because I think leadership in crisis is about getting down into the trenches. I actually slept at eBay for over a month. Wait, what? Yeah, I asked my assistant to get cots. You slept at eBay for a month? Yes, because I was sort of just had to be there. Like part of leadership, I was not a very deep technology executive at the time. I'm much deeper from a technology perspective today. And so the only thing I could do was to lead by being there, lead by taking the temperature of the engineers, lead by making sure all of our partners, whether it was Cisco or VeriSign or Sun Microsystems, were all on board to help us. And so I figured that I really just couldn't leave because the thing was so unstable. We had a, a girls 
conference room and a boys' conference room, and we use the showers and bathrooms. So what I'm fascinated by is, obviously, this was over 20 years ago. Workplaces look very different today or are trying to look different today. There's a huge you know, movement around wellness and avoiding burnout and protecting employees from burnout. When you look back at, at those days and the decision to sleep there, would you make the same decision today? Absolutely. A hundred percent. Because, you know, when there's, and this was truly a crisis, this was not just like sort of something that happened. This was really a crisis. I mean, the future of the company was at stake here. And, you know, people have different leadership styles. For my leadership style, it was absolutely the only thing to do because there's no substitute for being there. I like to say the truth is on the coalface. It's not at headquarters. And the coalface was our NOC, our network operations center. And so to be there with the engineers, talking to the vendors and partners just made all the difference. You know, we're interviewing you right now in a crazy time in our world where nobody is in the office right now. And leaders and, you know, us included are trying to figure out how to be strong CEOs, how to be strong managers and how to show leadership. I'm curious, like you are, you know, in a new leadership role at a new company, Quibi, how are you being there? How are you showing that you're digging in when you can't physically be there? So I feel like I live on Zoom. (laughs) Yeah, we do too. And I'm trying to drop into meetings. So my management style in the workplace is by walking around. I mean, especially with a company of 250 people, like you can know everybody. So I'm going to walk around, see people go up to their desks, see what's happening. So now I'm dropping into meetings that I'm not actually necessarily invited to per se. Sometimes I just listen. This Friday, we're doing a a company meeting on Slack, um, which we hadn't planned. I had a thing called Breakfast with Meg, which I did once a week, which literally was Breakfast with Meg. So we're still doing Breakfast with Meg, only it's Coffee with Meg, and it's Bring Your Own. So we're just kind of keeping up some of those things. I just got off a a Slack chat with women in the workplace at Quibi, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, just spent half an hour answering questions, you know, from our women employees, of which, by the way, about 51% of our company is women. You mentioned earlier that you've become a much more technically proficient leader. Carly and I do not have a tech background. We certainly understand what it's like to check in with engineers and show up and show support without necessarily knowing the ins and outs of what they're talking about. How did you start to dive into that skill set? I think for a lot of people, it can be intimidating. By doing it. I mean, honestly, there was no substitute for being there when the eBay website went down. I mean, just by sitting there, listening to what they're talking about, asking questions, understanding what's happening, understanding, you know, actually what a backend database actually does and when it's corrupted, what happens. So it was really being there and asking questions. I think those of us who do not have a technology background, you just have to ask questions. And interestingly, when I first started asking questions, I thought, oh, they're just going to think I'm not smart or, you know, what, what the heck am I doing here if I don't, if I can't add value from a tech perspective. And in a funny way, what I found is that, that engineers love to tell you about what they're doing. And so I just learned by asking questions and by doing, it was completely on-the-job training for those 10 years and then a different kind of tech at, at HP because that is, you know, that was big iron, you know, server storage, networking, which I knew nothing about. Um, and so I just asked a lot of questions. You obviously dramatically changed the trajectory of eBay. Under your tenure, it became an enormous team. It generated billions of dollars in revenue. When you think back to what that did for you, and we're going to dig into the next parts of your career, 
What do you think your core skill set is? What are you best at? You know, people have sort of a core competency. I think at my core, I am a strategist and a marketer. And probably I'm a strategist because my, really my first job after P&G was Bain. So I was trained in cost, customers, competitors, sustainable competitive advantage, financial architecture. And so I think my core competency is probably strategy. And I have a belief that if you have the right strategy and less than perfect execution, you'll be okay. If you have the wrong strategy and perfect execution, you will not be okay. And so I think that's probably my first competency. My second is from my training at P&G probably is marketing. Just have been a marketer, you know, almost sort of as a domain expert my whole life. At The Skim, we talk a lot about our values, and one of our values is to work smarter. What that means for us is we are always trying to make sure we are working efficiently, and that means helping each other spend our time wisely. We are always looking to get back time in our day and in our skimmer's day because, let's face it, no one has enough time in their day. So talking about taxes, talking about H&R Block, the fact that H&R Block gives you time back in your day to focus on other important things is a really big help. So H&R Block Online is so easy with their on-demand help if you need it. You can do it on your own completely, or if you need them, you are immediately set up with a tax pro with a chat and screen share. There is literally no reason to be stuck while filing online. H&R Block has upfront transparent pricing, so you know your price as you go. There are no surprises, none of the hidden fees that we all hate. To learn more, go to hrblock.com slash skin. That's hrblock.com slash skin. So after running eBay, you decided, you know, it would be really fun running for governor. (laughs) Why? Well, that's a very good question. And and I think I might have made made a statement that said something like, it'd be really fun to run for governor. So my first boss at Bain & Company was Mitt Romney. And I worked for Mitt for 10 years. And I helped on both his senatorial campaign and his two presidential campaigns. And I came to admire Mitt very much you know, highly ethical, highly moral, very competent individual. And I really admired what he was doing. And when he lost the first presidential primary, you might recall to John McCain, John McCain asked if I would help him. And I joined his campaign only on part-time. I mean, I was still at eBay. And I really admired John. You know, John was all about country first and had just a remarkable, you know, sort of life experience and, and what he was trying to give back to the country. And I said, you know what? these guys are super inspiring. And California at the time was a state in big trouble, you know, tremendous budget deficits. You know, in 1956, the public school system in California was number one in the country. Today, it's number 48. And I said, you know, I think I might be able to figure this out. I might be able to help the state bring to bear my knowledge from business and my knowledge of of leading and managing organizations. So I decided to dive in. And it was the most difficult experience of my entire life. We should be glad that anyone runs for any office. For our listeners, and my own curiosity, what about it was so difficult? Politics is a full-on combat sport. And before you get into politics, you should figure out whether you are um, a combatant. Do you like conflict? Do you, you know, enjoy just brutal and very tough give and take? And I don't happen to be a combatant. I don't love conflict. I don't mind arguing for ideas, but I don't love conflict. And that is a full-on 
combat sport all the time. And it's just incredibly difficult. Here's the other thing I would say. You know, when you're at the skim, it's you and the skim, right? It was me and HP, me and eBay. You are part of something. When you run for public office, actually, it's just you. It's a referendum on you. And so I took it really personally. Now, by the way, people who are career politicians, they do not. I mean, here's a great story for you. So I lose the governor's race. I am certain that my life is over. You know, like my reputation has been ruined. This is a disaster. I can't even walk down the street. And all my politician friends were like, oh, yeah, you know, you you lost a race. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, if you lost money in one quarter. Did you consider that to be the first big failure you had? It was a pretty big and very public failure. My probably the previous failure was FTD, you know, which was an LBO by Bain Capital and Perry Partners where I was fired after two years on the job. How do you come back from whether it's fired, whether it's, you know, running for governor and losing? How did you pick yourself up? Yeah. Well, I think um, the first one was sort of easier than the second one because, you know, I understood that there were challenges with the situation. And so I just said, listen, you know, that was a mistake. And I learned a lot from it. And I said, you know, I'm just going to go get another job, which I did. The governor's race was harder because, as I said, it was very public. So it's about a month after the governor's race. And I'm sitting at home at four o'clock in the afternoon watching Ellen DeGeneres, which is one of my favorite television shows. And I'm sitting there and my husband comes home early from work. He was a neurosurgeon at Stanford. And he looks at me and he goes, oh, this is really not good. <laughs> you have got to pull your socks up and you've got to figure out what you're going to go do because you cannot just do nothing. I mean, you'll be out of your mind. You're obviously very confident. A lot of people wouldn't have the guts to be like, you know what? I'm really good at being a strategist. I'm going to run for governor. There's one thing to like be good at your job and another to be like, you know, I can fix the whole state. And at the same time, I think you had a very human reaction of it's really painful to get critical feedback, to lose something, to fail at something. And so I'm very curious, you know, when you are not at work presenting in front of a big team and you're not doing board calls and investor, you know, calls, what are the things that you are insecure about and how do you get through that? I like to do everything really well. And what I learned over time is it's very hard to be the perfect wife, the perfect mother, the perfect hostess. And so I think I'm quite sensitive to criticism in some of those areas because I sort of felt like maybe I didn't do as good a job as I could have. But I look back and I think now there was no way I personally could have done it any better. Something had to give here along the way. And so I think I'm, you know, sort of probably a little bit insecure. insecure. You know, listen, I, I have two boys who are fantastic who are now 35 and 32, but I missed a lot of football games. I missed a lot of, you know, they're growing up. And my husband and I traded off over time. But sometimes I look back and I say, gosh, you know, should I have tried to have been to more games or, you know, I was there for them, I think, when they needed me most. It's hard. It's, you know, it's challenging. What's your advice when you've managed young women or men that are preparing to have, you know, young families when they're thinking about how, I don't like to to use the word balance, but how to actually think through these decisions and think through their careers? So everyone's going to come to a different conclusion. There's no run one right way to do this or right answer. You have to figure it out in terms of what you love, what makes you happy, what kind of partner do you have? How are you going to split up responsibilities? And I'll tell you a little tip that seems so tactical, but it literally has made all the difference for me and my husband. Every Sunday night, 
we calendar. Okay, in the Whitman Harsh family, the verb there is a verb called to calendar. <laughs> And we literally go through what's the next week, who's home with the kids, you know, who's up for breakfast, who's taking them to school. And we just worked it out so that one of us was on duty all the time. And on Saturdays and Sundays, if we couldn't take the kids, we didn't go. Calendaring saved our lives because we could see when the, you know, the trains were about to collide two or or three or four weeks out, and then we could make adjustments. I think that goes a long way. I want to talk about when you took over as CEO of HP. It was a struggling company and you come in and you know that you need to turn things around. How do you walk into an environment like that and not scare people? Mm. So this is something I learned very early on and I deployed it at Hasbro and I deployed it at eBay. When you come into a situation like that, your instinct, right, is to find everything that's wrong point that out and try to fix it because that's what you think is going to help the company the most. Actually, that instinct is, in my view, wrong. What you need to figure out is what is the company or the organization doing well and how do you get them to do more of it? And at eBay, for example, I came in and and the company was growing at a 70% compound monthly growth rate. So I'm like, okay, what are we doing that is causing a 70% compound monthly growth rate? And how about we do more of that? And that is how you rally the organization because no one wants to feel criticized. No one wants to, you know, have all the different things that that could be improved pointed out right at the beginning. And so when I went to HP and it was a harder problem at HP to find the things that were going well, but I found them and I said, we're going to do more of that. Wow. I made the to-do list of things that, you know, did in fact need to be changed. And the only way to win hearts and minds of a company, particularly a really proud yet troubled company like Hewlett Packard, was to approach it that way. Because if I'd come in and said, this is wrong and this is wrong, we should have fixed this. And why are you doing this? And I can't even believe this. You just don't capture the hearts of people. To do more of what's working is a lot easier and a lot faster than to fix the things that are wrong. HP was in a crisis mode when you came. You dealt with splitting the company in, into two, which was, you know, a historic moment. You also had to really deal with restructuring teams and making really painful decisions. I think especially in today's climate when so many companies are, are facing, maybe not on the same scale, but facing similar decisions, I'm really curious what you would say to those just going through that. It never gets easier. It's always really, really hard. I think it is the most difficult thing that general managers do, which is to right-size organizations. And most times when people do it, they do it for the very survival of the company. Um, It's not, for the most part, because people, you know, enjoy it, or at least the times I've had to do it, it's really been around the survival of the company. I mean, HP would not have survived without the restructuring that we did, but it never gets easier. I mean, it's just so hard because you know you are impacting people's lives and their children and their spouses. I mean, it's just a really, really tough thing. So the only way I get through it is I just say, you know, it's for the ultimate health of the company and the survival, if you will, and and making the company surviving in a great place for the people that remain. But it's not an easy thing. It's the hardest thing you do. Who do you go to for advice? Like who got you through that moment? Listen, the board, I find my board to be very helpful. I've always been a big believer in boards. I've always gotten really good people on the boards of companies I've run. I am very transparent with the board. I tell the board everything. 
Boards hate surprises, and they would prefer to know looming problems as opposed to find out about the problems much later. Pat Russo was, this is the interesting for the skim, so it was the only Fortune 500 company that had a female CEO, a female CFO, and a female chairman of the board. Huh. And um, Pat Russo was an amazing chairman of the board. You know, she was the president and CEO of, of Alcatel-Lucent and uh, a really very accomplished business executive. So she was a great sounding board. Often my senior team, you know, will be a good sounding board. I don't actually carry those, you know, problems home to, you know, my husband or family. I try to sort of leave the office at work if I can. How have you learned to compartmentalize like that? Do you meditate? (laughs) Um, I will say I think children really helped because when you come in that door, especially when they're little, they have no idea what you do, what's happening, and they require your 100% attention. And so you actually have to, you have to like leave everything and be there for them. I mean, they require that. They were very helpful, I think, to me in compartmentalizing. And I also watched my husband, he's a neurosurgeon, and those guys have gotten very good over the years of compartmentalizing because in what we do in business, lives are not at risk, right? You know, no one dies doing what we're doing. My husband, people die if he doesn't do it right or if there's, you know, some external thing. They've gotten quite good at, you know, when they're there and they're operating there 150% on, but then they stop because they have to renew because you can't just be thinking about your patients 24 by 7 or you won't be a good doctor. So, you know, I actually watched him do that as well. So I'm not perfect at it by any stretch of the imagination, but better than I was 20 years ago or 30 years ago. So, Meg, we want to talk about your latest adventure, Quibi. You are doing this alongside, you know, up-and-comer Jeffrey Katzenberg. I think he's really got a a bright future ahead. This is the first time that you are part of the founding team creating the technology platform, not inheriting it. And I know you've had a lot of thoughts around what founder DNA does to a company and how you've taken that and, and scaled it or course corrected as needed. Talk to us about the difference in this journey versus your previous ones. This is the earliest stage company um, I've ever done. So when I joined eBay, it was 30 people, $4 million in revenue. It was a going concern. This, when I joined Jeffrey in March of 2018, there was the beginnings of a business plan and an idea. And so we just joined forces. When I showed up in March, it was just the two of us sitting across the table in a conference room looking at each other. We refined the business plan, rewrote the business plan, really got, I thought, a plan that made a lot of sense that investors would underwrite and would be a big success um, with consumers. And we had the luxury of several months to do that while we were out raising money. Then August 1st of 2018, we actually began to hire. I mean, we don't launch until April 6th, but uh, it was building the company from the ground up. And the good news is both of us had done startups. Jeffrey had done um, DreamWorks with David Geffen and Steven Spielberg. You know, we just partnered. And the good news is between the two of us, we have seen so many different things in business that we have really excellent pattern recognition now. We have very different skill sets. Jeffrey is a right brain creative storyteller. I'm a left brain analytical thinker. And so we often come at things very, very differently. But that's our superpower. And we're old enough now and mature enough We often say, had we been doing this 20 years ago, we would have killed each other by now. (laughs) You, you know, you just said you, you guys have both seen a lot and you've led companies of all different sizes. What still keeps you up at night? 
Well, I think in this particular situation, I'm a big believer in situational leadership. You know, the challenges at HP were completely different than the challenges at Quibi. And uh, the ta- challenge ahead of us was, how do we build startup with the agility, the flexibility, the entrepreneurial spirit, and yet avoid some of the pitfalls that we know can happen in a startup? And, you know, one of them is culture. You mentioned founder DNA. We had a very early discussion about what we wanted this DNA of the company to be. And had we not been through startups, I'm not sure we would have even had that concept. What did you say you wanted it to be? Well, we took the senior leadership team, such as it was, I think there was like 10 of us, off-site for two days. And we said, what's the mission of the company and what are the values that we want this company to exhibit? What is the founding team's DNA here, if you will? What do we want this culture to be like? And we said, first of all, you know, be the audience was the number one value, which is in front of the camera, behind the camera, in our workplace, and, you know, obviously being customer obsessed, we need to reflect our audience. Quibi is actually about 47% non-white, 51% women, and we are, we believe we are reflective of the audience that we're serving, which this millennial generation, as you know, is the most diverse generation in American history. The next one was um, the hard right versus the easy wrong. What is the right thing to do? Perfect example, should we give device IDs to advertisers who want to advertise on Quibi? Actually, not. We have to be on the right side of history of privacy. You know, it would have been easier to say yes, but we said, you know, we may lose an advertiser, but we have to do what we think is the right thing here. Another one is exceed expectations. If you say you're going to do something, do it better than you said you were going to do it. Just everything you do, exceed expectations. So we just laid down those values. We hired to those values. We've been really thoughtful about trying to, you know, make sure that culture stays intact. Are we perfect? No. But we know what culture we're going to end up here with, as opposed to a surprise at the end. You mentioned you guys are launching April 6th. Congratulations. Thank you. One thing I think that no one could foresee is launching in the middle of a global pandemic. While everyone is trying to figure out what the ramifications will be, any advice over the past few weeks as people try to navigate marketing and launches in this time of uncertainty? Well, we thought a lot about what we should do, you know, um, because a lot of our launch strategy was upended. We had a physical launch event with, you know, a press junket with a red carpet that 158 stars had agreed to come to the red carpet, do press interviews on the red carpet, and then come to this big gala event that was anchored by our core advertisers. Okay, all that two weeks ago went out the window. Our whole media plan had a big portion um, associated with sports. You know, we were going to be a big advertiser on um, March Madness. Okay, March Madness went away. So we had to pivot hard on a number of these things. And we did ask ourselves, does it make sense to launch? But we decided ultimately it did. I, we just want to get this app out in the wild. We want to see what shows people like. We want people to watch it. We want it to have it in people's hands. What we are is storytellers and entertainers. You know, we're not, my husband, we're not physicians. We're not healthcare professionals in any way. But what we can do is maybe give people just a little joy and fun in what is otherwise a pretty tough existence, I think, for all of us. So we decided to go. And so we just pivoted everything we could in the last two weeks to try to be sensitive to the environment, make sure that the tone of our advertising was exactly right. So we didn't appear tone deaf and not understanding of what the environment was and how, you know, really difficult it is for for many, many people. We're launching and obviously the tech is ready and, you know, the whole company is ready. So Jeffrey really has worked on the content part of this and we have the content pipeline. 
we banked a lot of content ahead of time because we just wanted to have enough content. And so we actually have content through the middle of September or October what's already completed. So that's, well, that's, that's good. Cause I got nothing but time right now to watch it. <laughs> You've had such a, an amazing career and have, you know, pecked off so many things that would be on anyone's bucket list of, you know, at a public company, politics, being a founder. Now, what challenge have you not done yet that you want to do? Well, I keep saying after, um, I remember governor, I said, you know, that I thought I probably would just retire. And then, you know, got called to be on the HP board and then ultimately got to be the, was asked to be the CEO. Um, and, uh, and then I got this call from Jeffrey. And so I said, you know what, I think I have one more startup in me. So I don't know what I will do after this. You know, really, it probably is time to spend time with the grandkids and little R&R, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> so let's get into our last round, our favorite round. It's the I'm lightning doing my round. General. Yes. General. Lightning round. Quick questions. Answer as fast as you can. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Morning person. Since this is our work from home edition, what's replaced your morning commute? You know, actually what you should ask is what replaced my morning swim, because of course all the pools are shut down. I now instead of swim, I I try to go to the gym, which is not my favorite thing. So I'm adapting from being a swimmer to being a gym person. What is the last show that you binge watched? Reese Witherspoon's show on Apple TV, The Morning Show. Morning Show. What is the first show we should watch on Quibi? Survive. Ooh, which one is that? I don't know if I want to watch that right now. Oh. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful love story. It's with Sophie Turner okay. and Corey Hawkins. Sophie Turner of Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Game. Yeah. It's a woman who is, you know, quite distressed about her life. She ends up on a plane. The plane crashes, and there's only a couple of survivors. She and Corey Hawkins. The other one you should watch, which is a personal passion of mine, is I Promise, which is the story of LeBron James's school in Akron, oh, Ohio, heard about this. I'm for um, third and fourth graders, and where he's yeah. surrounding them with everything they need to be. I heard it's amazing. Lovely, lovely documentary that um, I'm personally passionate about. So if it's not survived, try, I promise. Yeah, that that one feels more my my speed right now. Last question. What is your shameless plug? I'll use this to give a shameless plug for Quibi. I mean, we're super excited about the service and we hope everyone listening will download the app on April 6th. And um, we have a 90-day free trial. So you can try it and see if you like it. And you can send me a note, meg at quibi.com about what you think. Oh, Meg, thank you so much. Congratulations on the launch. Thank you very much. Thanks for spending time. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.